I'm glad you all are here. We're going to continue our series in the Jesus way uh, this week, and we're going to start by looking at what Jesus has to say about giving. Jesus highlights three primary spiritual disciplines or practices, giving, praying, and fasting uh, for his followers. And so we're going to talk uh, this morning about giving. And before I do, this is a little study guide that accompanies the book by Eugene Peterson called The Jesus Way. This book has been informative to us as we have worked to prepare this sermon series. If you would be interested in this study guide and you might consider even leaving, leading a study through the book, you don't have to commit to that today, but if you're interested in that and interested in the study guide, you can have it. Who would like this free study guide? Oh, right here. Awesome. Jazz. Yes. All right, we're going to be in Matthew 6. That's the text that was read this morning. And I'm going to just dive right in since it was already read for you, for us. My son recently showed me a clip of a podcast where two comedians were discussing philanthropy. And one of them, it was uh, Tom Segura and Bert Kreischer, and I'm not commending anything to you, but take it for what it is. Uh, one of them, Tom, had recently been featured in an article for giving $40,000 to a children's hospital. And his friend, Bert, was asking him questions about why he did this. And Tom's answer is basically, when I started to do well professionally, I felt a responsibility to do something charitable. And Bert's response was, well, now i got to find a charity. And he starts to as, as he starts to consider that, he says, I think I think about me a lot. I think I think about me a lot. Then Bert finds out that for giving $40,000, the Children's Hospital gave Tom an award. Then the rest of the segment is Bert trying to find a charity to give to, and he asks Tom how it works. Do I just call the hospital and say, hey, I've got 40 grand I want to give you. Can you line up an award for me? <laughs> if I give 80 grand, do I give a bronze stat get a bronze statue of myself in the hospital? Tom explained that he didn't give the money for the award, over the course of several months, he made small donations, and eventually the children's hospital called him and said, we would like to present you with this award. Can you come by? Bert says, I'm going to be very clear. I'm giving one lump sum, and I want the award and an article written about me. <laughs> then Bert makes this profoundly honest statement. Look, here's the deal about giving money. You only do it to feel good about yourself, right? It's a reward for yourself. No one gives money when it hurts. No one's like, I'm donating all my money, and now I can't live. It's a thing you do so you feel good. You want the payoff, right? Then he makes an offer to donate a lump sum to any charity in Tampa that will give him an award and an article. Now, what's great about this exchange is that Bert is just being honest about philanthropy. When people give money to those in need, there is always a component of self-interest involved. And in fact... Jesus, in this text and in all of his teachings, would fundamentally agree with that. He would say that's true. When you do something kind, when you do something good, there is some element in there of self-interest. And Jesus doesn't condemn that, actually. In fact, it's how he starts this central section on his famous Sermon on the Mount. He starts with this assumption, don't lose your reward from your Father in heaven. So in all of these practices, whether you're giving or whether you're praying or whether you're fasting or whether you're just doing good works in the community, don't do it in such a way that you lose your reward. What's the 
other way of saying that, do it in such a way that you gain your reward. Do it. Do these things and do them in such a way that you gain your reward. So we're going to look at just four quick truths that Jesus says here in this short segment on this profound sermon. First, the first observation is, obviously, we want rewards. We want rewards. Is it okay to just say that? We want rewards, right? We do. We do. We naturally do. Jesus agrees with this prevailing philosophical assumption of his day. We are all motivated by our own happiness. That's what people pretty much agreed to at the time that he was preaching this sermon. If you find yourself recoiling against that idea, it's only because you've been influenced by another philosophy that is actually contrary to scriptural teaching. Throughout the entire Old Testament, it's assumed that we ultimately want to be happy. Ultimately, we as people want to be happy. This is first seen in the Garden of Eden. You could reframe the conundrum of Adam and Eve by saying they were looking for happiness. Adam and Eve were fundamentally looking for happiness. And God told them, this is what happiness looks like. You can eat freely in this garden of anything you want except this tree. And if you do this, you will be happy and you will live forever. And if you don't, you disobey me, you eat from this tree, you will not be happy and you will ultimately die. And the serpent came to them and tempted them with this fundamental question. What will ultimately make you happy? That's what was at stake for them in their minds as they were pondering this. And ultimately, we know the story. They chose the wrong tree and they went their own way. Did it ultimately make them happy? No. Probably in the moment, it tasted good. We know that about sin, right? For a moment, it feels good. For a moment, that forbidden fruit tastes good. And so for a moment, it might have made them happy, but did the happiness last? No. And so God was proven just there to be a truth teller, to be good to his word. And he was merciful and gracious to them and didn't kill them right away. They still lived a long and ultimately probably happy life. But throughout the rest of Old Testament scripture, we're going to see time and time again, God coming to his people and saying, if you will just trust me and follow me, I will give you the happiness that you long for. And if you don't, you will not receive the happiness that you long for. And the story of humanity that's told throughout the Old Testament is the story of us trying time and time again to find our own happiness, our own way, and never succeeding. But that's what we're after. We want to be happy. And ultimately, we want to be rewarded. We don't have time here to look at the hundreds of passages where we see this, but it's in every book and in every genre in the Old Testament. It's especially in the wisdom literature. Psalm 1 starts out with the promise that the one who delights in the law of the Lord will be like a tree planted by streams of water, and in all he does, he will prosper. That's a promise for happiness, reward. It's a reward promise. Again, in Psalm 23, perhaps the most famous psalm of all, it concludes with a picture of God preparing a huge feast for those who trust him and anointing their heads with oil and causing their cups to overflow. And the promise of that psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The promise of that psalm is that if we will trust our good shepherd, we can walk through suffering and even death itself and ultimately find true happiness. Happiness, reward, will survive the valley of the shadow of death. 
So when we fast forward to Jesus' day, by the time Jesus shows up, this is the prevailing understanding of human motivation. We are in this for our happiness. It was also the prevailing thought of Greek and Roman philosophy. Everyone understood this and it wasn't considered a bad thing. It was just a human thing. And everything you do, whether it's a good deed or a bad deed, at the bottom of your motivation is a desire ultimately to be happy. And it wouldn't be until the third century BC that this idea would be challenged and it would be challenged by the Stoics. The Stoics taught that the only way to be truly moral when doing the right things was to do those things purely out of duty and to remove all self-interest from the equation. If any of your deeds were influenced by self-interest, those deeds were then tainted and stripped of any moral value, no matter how good they might seem. It's the only truly way to be virtuous. So if you're giving to the poor and you gain anything from that, whether that's the perception in the community of being a good person or just an inner good feeling, you're ultimately doing that for yourself. It's then a selfish deed and no longer a moral deed. This is what the Stoics taught. This philosophy came and went throughout the centuries, but experienced a resurgence in the 17th and 18th centuries, especially in Europe, particularly in the writings of a philosopher named Immanuel Kant, who taught that the highest form of morality in helping others is when we help them not because alleviating their struggle makes us feel a certain way, but because helping them is the right thing to do, to help for any other reason, to be motivated by their feelings or our own, is to strip that good deed of any moral value. So if I give to you because it makes you feel good or because it makes me feel good, I'm ultimately giving for selfish reasons and it is stripped of moral value. Today in the West, that philosophy actually carries a lot of weight. That's why when those comedians are talking, Bert's comments are seen as the humor and a joke when he says, ultimately, when we give, we give to feel good. That's considered a joke. We're not supposed to feel that way, right? That's why, there's a, that's why it's a punchline, because we're not supposed to give to feel good. But ultimately, we do give to feel good. And that's not bad, as long as we're doing that in the right way. And Jesus is going to explain this. So according to Jesus... We want rewards. We want rewards. The second observation he makes, or the second observation we can make from what he says is, we even give money to get rewards. We give to get. People do this. So Jesus says, when we give money, he doesn't say if you give, when you give. Verse 2, thus when you give to the needy sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others truly i say to you they have received their reward when you give to the needy you are giving for a reward jesus assumes this he doesn't say not to do this either he doesn't say when you give remove all feeling from the equation and give because it's just the right thing to do he could have said that he didn't say that he actually says, when you give to get a reward, make sure you give to get the best reward. That's the summary of his teaching here. When you're giving to those in need, consider your motivation. Don't remove your motivation. That's actually impossible. You won't be able to do it. Nobody has ever done anything nice for anyone else with absolute selflessness. You can't do it. 
That sounds blasphemous almost to our modern understanding of morality. If you found out I gave money to somebody holding a cardboard sign on the corner of one of our streets and you asked me why I did it, if my answer was in any way because it made me happy to do it, you would probably call me a hypocrite. <laughs> probably would. And if that was the only reason I did it, if I only gave money to that person because it made me feel good, then I would probably have to agree with you. But there's more to it than that. One pastor illustrated this concept this way, and it has stuck with me for years, and I think it's helpful. Suppose I showed up at our house after a long day of work, and I had this beautiful bouquet of flowers for Katie, and I hand it, as I'm walking in the door, I hand her the flowers. And she says, why are you giving me flowers? And I say, Katie, I'm giving you these flowers because I'm your husband, and it's the right thing to do. Is that a sufficient answer? Is that a sufficient answer? Of course it's not a sufficient answer. Even though it's perfectly moral, according to Kant, it's not a sufficient answer. But if my answer was, honey, you are the light of my life. And on my way home, I stopped at the Source Hotel, and I walked by Kimberly's shop, Beat and Yarrow, and saw this, yeah, and saw this bouquet, and when I saw it, its beauty made me think of yours. And in that moment, I knew that the only way for me to be truly happy in this world was to get these flowers for you and give them to you. So I'm so happy to give you these flowers. Would Katie then say, would Katie then say, oh, this made you happy? This is all about you? Would she say that? Of course she wouldn't say that. Of course she wouldn't say that. In that gift, my happiness is being rewarded. I'm made happy. I'm happy to do this for the person that I love. And she's made happy by the gift. Right? Right. That is a simple understanding of motivation, and it shouldn't be discarded. That is the biblical understanding of our motivation, and it's a good thing. You were hardwired to want happiness and reward. So it's not just when we give money, but in this place right here where Jesus is speaking about money, it's very relevant. We give money because we want to be happy on some level. Third observation about what Jesus is teaching here. Public esteem is an empty reward. Public esteem is an empty reward. If you give this way, blowing trumpets, announcing your gift, letting everybody know what you're doing, Jesus says, when they do that, I say to you, they have received the reward. The implication there is, and it's insufficient. It's insufficient. It's less than what they're looking for. It's not going to provide true happiness. The problem is when the reward we seek is insufficient. The problem Jesus has with most giving out there is not that it's motivated by reward, but that the reward motivating the gift is too small. And he encourages his followers here to think bigger with your philanthropy, not just in the amount of what you're getting, but in the reward that's at stake. The praise of others, public esteem is an insufficient reward for your generosity. Give to those in need. You should do that. And when you do that, don't do it for the applause of onlookers. Why is it insufficient? Well, for one thing, the esteem of others is fleeting. Has anyone's opinion about you ever changed? <laughs> Has your good opinion about someone else ever changed? All the time, all the time. 
I can think great thoughts about you, one thing can happen, and I can think the worst thoughts about you. This is true of all of us, isn't it, or is it just me? This is true. This is true. So this is going to fade. No matter how high your esteem is in the eye of other, eyes of others, I promise you it will fade. And Jesus knew this. This is actually why psychologists see a link between Instagram and the rising number of teen suicides. You don't have the strength to look good to people indefinitely. You don't have that kind of strength. And certainly our teenagers don't have that kind of strength. You won't be able to do it. You were created to give glory to your creator. And when you get that wrong, when you think your highest value in life is looking like a good person in the eyes of others, you have unwittingly made yourself the God of your own small universe. And because you're not God, but you're masquerading as God, it will crush you. It will ultimately crush you. And when we seek the applause of others, that is what we're doing. That's what we're doing. You were created to give glory to your creator. And when you seek to take some of that glory into your good deeds for yourself, you are actually putting yourself in the place of God and you cannot bear the weight of the universe. It will only crush you and end in emptiness and unhappiness. So Jesus says, why in the world would you give that way? That's how everybody else gives. Don't give that way. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is referring to reward over and over and over again. You could summarize his Sermon on the Mount by saying, I'm going to tell you how to be happy. That's the Sermon on the Mount. And it is totally contrary to the culture of his day and the culture of our day. That's why we refer to his teaching on the kingdom as the upside down kingdom, because it doesn't make sense. I mean, just one thing that he says, love your enemies and you'll be happy. That doesn't make sense. It's backwards to us. But throughout all of this, Jesus is going to say, there is a way to reward that is a better reward than what everybody else out there is seeking. And if you'll just trust me, you'll be rewarded. So public esteem is an empty reward. When you give to those in need, don't give for esteem. Don't do it so everyone will think you're great. Don't make yourself God, either yours or theirs. Find a better reason. Pursue a better reward. And the last observation about what Jesus is teaching here and the summit of this section of what he's saying is your father offers a better reward. Look at what he says. Truly, I say to you, the end of verse two, they have received their reward. But verse three, when you give, when my followers give, if you want to give the way I, Jesus, this is how I give. If you want to give according to the Jesus way, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. This is not putting on a ski mask and going out to somebody and saying, I'm going to give you all my money. That's not what this is. Anonymous giving is good. But in the previous chapter, Jesus says, let your light shine. You're, you're called to be a city on a hill. Don't hide it under a bushel basket. Let it shine. And so this seems contradictory. One commentator that I read said, actually, it's not contradictory. He's appealing to two broken desires in us. The one is cowardice. 
The one that he's talking to in Matthew chapter five, when he says, let your light shine, he's speaking to our tendency to retreat from the public square, to retreat from people thinking we're weird because we're believing this countercultural gospel. He says, don't do that. Let it shine. Here, he's, he's speaking to our tendency to want to be seen. And he's saying, don't, don't give that way. So the commentator said, so for Christians, when we want to be seen, we shouldn't. And when we don't want to be seen, we should. <laughs> and that's true. That's true. The more important point that Jesus is making here is you give, when you give, give so that your Father in heaven sees it and rewards. There is a type of giving that your good Father in heaven delights in rewarding. Give that way. God is a God who rewards. Hebrews 11.6 says, this is fundamental to our faith in him. Without faith, it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe, one, that he exists, and two, what's two? That he rewards. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For, for, him to for you to come to God, you must believe that he exists. That's obvious. And you must believe that he rewards. That's less obvious, but it's true. So your father in heaven rewards, and he knows better than anyone how to reward you. Why? Well, because he's your father who sees in secret. This is not, you better watch out, you better not cry. He sees you when you're sleeping. <laughs> That's not what this is. He does all of that. <laughs> but Jesus isn't saying this to make you scared of messing up. It's not why he's saying this. He's not saying God sees you in secret to scare you. He's saying it to comfort you. This is an encouragement. Your father in heaven sees all of the good in you that nobody else sees. When nobody else sees it. He appreciates you to a depth that nobody else does. He esteems you at a level that is higher than all of the public esteem you could ever get. That's how he sees you. Your father who sees you in secret sees all the good things you do that go unnoticed. He notices them. When you give your money to someone and nobody applauds, your father applauds like a dad at his daughter's volleyball game. This is the father who sees in secret. Or when you pour your life out for people who then turn on you and accuse you of malicious intent, your father sees you. When you're anxious in the night worrying about whether or not all of this is worth it, your Father in heaven sees you in that secret place. And this Father in heaven rewards. And more specifically, he knows how to reward you. He knows how to reward you. Parents understand this. We know what motivates our kids for the most part. And those things tend to change. I used to be able to motivate these two young men right here by nothing more than a trip to the playground. I know. I used to be able to say, if you will do these things, whether it was clean your room or whatever, if you'll do these things, I'm going to take you to the park. And they would be pumped and they would do it. And now it doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work. They don't care about the slides or the swings, but they have some motivations. They do have motivations. Katie and I have had to get creative, and even now we know what uniquely motivates each of our kids. For one boy, it might be a particular video game. For our daughter, it's always going to be cheesecake. 
For our oldest son, it's a snake, and it's not worth it to us, so we don't try to motivate that kid. <laughs> I love you, Jason. Your father in heaven who sees you in that secret place where no one else sees you and understands your heart like no one else does and sees all of the good in you knows how to reward you. And right now, he is preparing a reward for you, unique to you, that will exceed your wildest expectations and will make all the applause and fame for doing good deeds fade into the background. He knows what drives you, and he's preparing a reward for you that is going to blow your mind so Jesus doesn't say, don't give for reward. Jesus says, give for the unimaginable reward that your Father in heaven is preparing for you. That's what he says. There's even more here. There's this reward that's waiting for you out there in the future at the end of life and it's gonna blow your mind, but there's another reward that's right here and you can have it right now. In Matthew 25, 34, Jesus gives us a picture of that last day when the Father is handing out rewards. Rewards for those who listened to what Jesus had to say and followed him and believed him and rewards for those who didn't. He's handing out rewards and this is what Jesus says. He will say to us, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry. There's the reward right there. There's the reward. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of these, the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Providence, when you give to those in need, you are meeting the risen Jesus himself. In the story of those comedians that I started out with, Bert said, no one's like, I'm donating all my money and now I can't live. But actually, someone did say that. Jesus said, I'm going to give until it kills me, and then I'm going to keep giving. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Philippians says Jesus emptied himself of all of his riches and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus came, the king, the king came, and didn't associate with the kings and the famous ones. He associated with the least of these, not as one who was better than them, but as a brother and a friend. And when I hear the phrase, the least of these, I kind of cringe a little bit. And I'll tell you why. I was at a concert not too long ago. 
And there was the point, we got to the point in the concert where they're going to plug a nonprofit or a charity for people to give to. You've all done this, been this, seen this. And so somebody got up and he invited the least of these up on the stage. That's how he referred to them. And it was a mixture of people who had fallen on hard times at various points in their lives. Some had been formerly incarcerated and they were telling their stories and a big deal was made. We were all, it was very clear to all of us, Christians, you should give to this because we help the least of these. And everybody applauded and cheered. And it was just, for me, I was cringing because if I was them, I wouldn't want to be the least of these. I don't, I don't want to be that. I don't want that label. And so when I hear this label, that's what I think of. And I withdraw from it. But when you hear Jesus refer to the least of these, you have to hear it in the context of his kingdom teaching. When Jesus talks about the kingdom, who is the greatest in the kingdom? Who will be greatest? If you want to be greatest, the least. The least. When he refers to the least of these, he's referring to how this blind world sees people with no ability to truly evaluate worth. This is how we refer to those who were incarcerated, those who didn't have food, those who were cold, those who were hungry, those who were thirsty, we see them as less than. But in the kingdom, they are royalty. In the kingdom, they're royalty. And we should count ourselves lucky to serve them. That's how the upside down kingdom works. So when Jesus refers to the least of these, it is not pejorative. He's referring to our betters. <laughs> Do you hear that? Do you hear that? This, these are Jesus's people. These are the people that he went to and hung out with and associated with. And so today, if you're looking for Jesus, where do you look? I can tell you it's not where you might think. It's not the person on the stage. <laughs> it's not the person with a million or more followers. It's the unheard of. That's where Jesus is. That's where Jesus is. When we give to the, those in need, we give to Jesus himself. And when we give in that way, we are immediately receiving Christ himself, who is in that very moment, our sure and very great reward. Why would you give for any le anything less? There is no greater reward than Jesus himself. Do you want someone to clap for you? Or do you want to befriend the king of the universe? Jesus is the reward. The right now, not waiting until I die, the right now reward, motivating all of our generosity. Providence, I'm here this morning to bless you. I am not here to lecture you. Truly, I consider it a privilege to be part of this church. This is how, this, this is how I have always seen you do this. Pastors are supposed to be exemplary. We're supposed to be, scripture calls us to be examples to the flock. But I consistently see the way that you give and find myself compelled to follow your example. You do this well. Your father in heaven, if he were here in the flesh, would say to you, well done, Providence. I don't see this as a lacking area for you as a church. I'm not here to, I don't feel like I'm here to correct you. 
I'm here to remind you and encourage you and to say, keep on doing it. You're doing a great job. Why do we have over 60 Venezuelans worshiping with us this morning? Why? Why do we? It's because Jesus went to his people in a distant country, people who were facing hardship, and he said to them, come with me. And over the course of weeks and months, he led them through treacherous jungles and over raging rivers and across scorching deserts, all the way to Denver, Colorado. And he said to this group of 60 people, I have friends in Denver who will welcome you with open arms. And the Jesus who walks among our Venezuelan brothers and sisters is the same Jesus that we worship as God himself. And he is our treasure and he is our very great and everlasting reward. And when we receive them, and to the degree that we receive them, we receive him. The reason they came is because God saw you in the secret place. He saw how you give. He saw how you welcome the stranger. He saw how you love those in need and help when you can help. He saw it. And your father in heaven is rewarding you right now right now. So go shout it in the streets that if you feel like a stranger, like you don't have a home, like you don't have a family, we, the people of Providence Bible Church, will open our doors to you, we'll open our arms to you, we'll open our wallets to you, we'll open our refrigerators to you, we'll open our very hearts to you. And we will treat you with the respect and honor and dignity that your royalty deserves. For though you may be seen as the least of these, we see you as the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because ultimately, when Jesus' people give, we give to receive a very great and everlasting reward. Let's pray. Father, I pray you would just continue to let this fire in us, this holy fire burn, that we would continue just loving the way that Jesus loved and live the way that Jesus lived. Father, I pray for those times, even in my own heart and in my life, where I am seeking the lesser reward, and that happens to me plenty. Father, I pray you gently correct me, bring it to my attention so that I can repent of it and seek the greater reward. Father, I pray for us as a church that we would not squander this opportunity that we have right now, right now. We've been given opportunities all along the way, and this is the latest one, to love these brothers and sisters from Venezuela. I pray, Father, that you would empower, equip, bless us to be able to be a blessing to them so that it would overflow from our lives and into their lives, and may they find home here. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.